Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome to episode 228 of the Modern Bar Cart podcast. I'm your host, Eric Koslick. Thanks for joining me for this interview episode where we track down the best and brightest minds in the spirits and cocktail world so that we can share their secrets with you. This time around, I have the distinct pleasure of sitting down face-to-face with two guests, Jewel Murray, General Manager and Creative Director at the Gibson, one of DC's most illustrious cocktail bars, and Duncan Coltharp, Sales Representative and Cocktail Consultant with Mount Defiance Cidery and Distillery in Middleburg, Virginia. Our topic, if you couldn't tell from the episode title, is gin. And not just gin in general, but the process of creating and launching a gin from scratch in the year 2022. We're at a point in the evolution of the cocktail world that has seen plenty of gin trends, then reactions to those trends, and then reactions to those reactions, all in the name of brand differentiation and all in the name of building flavors that we think people will want to drink. But the question remains, In a spirits category that seems to have pivoted itself into a blur, how does one create a gin that stands out from the herd? We tackle this question by examining Gin Nouveau, a brand new product from Mount Defiance Cidery and Distillery, and I had the distinct opportunity to watch the creation of this spirit from the ground up, which is why I'm super excited to try and distill down some of the biggest lessons from that process. But before we start talking about things like botanical bills and mouthfeel in one of DC's most legendary cocktail bars, let's take a moment so that you can make yourself a drink. This episode's featured cocktail is the Gershwin. To make it, you'll need two ounces of gin, one half ounce simple syrup, one half ounce ginger liqueur, something like Domaine de Canton would work here, or you could sub in a smaller amount of an intense ginger syrup, like the Pratt Standard Ginger Syrup, available on modernbarcart.com, three quarters of an ounce of fresh lemon juice, and two drops of rose water. Combine the gin, ginger liqueur, simple syrup, and lemon juice in a cocktail shaker with ice. Give them a good hard shake until everything is properly chilled and diluted. Then strain into a stemmed cocktail glass. Give it a nice spritz of rose water right over the top, ideally from an atomizer, and enjoy. This is a cocktail I was reminded of in this episode's lightning round, and I I love its simple, flavorful approach to what a gin sour can look like. It's the ginger and rose water that do all the heavy lifting in this cocktail, and that's something you don't see much of when you go out to cocktail bars these days. Simple riffs on classics where one or two small additions make all the difference. The Gershwin is a fantastic cocktail to play around with as the weather warms up, and you shouldn't have a hard time grabbing all the ingredients from your local liquor store and market. I hope you'll tag us on social media at Modern Bar Cart if you make one so that we can raise a digital glass together sometime soon. With that, let's turn our attention back to the interview. In this flavorful, botanically robust conversation and gin tasting with Duncan Coltharp and Jewel Murray, some of the topics we discuss include 
The process of creating a gin from scratch, at least the way they did it at Mount Defiance, which involved a boozy rendition of vision boarding, tinctures, eyedroppers, tasting panels, cocktail tests, and more. How Jewel thinks about gin when building cocktails for the Gibson's renowned cocktail program, and why not all gins are a great fit for all cocktails. Then, of course, we taste the Gin Nouveau by Mount Defiance and walk through some of the highlights of the botanical bill and distilling process to trace the flavors and aromas we encounter back to their original sources. We also give you the updates on a fantastic launch party for this spirit at the Gibson, which will be open to the public. So if you're in D.C. or will be passing through on April 28th, 2022, please hit up the details on the show notes page to learn how you can be part of the action. Along the way, we cover international gin trends from the past decade. Cocktails featuring Genepi and Cassis, potato vodka from Mars, and much, much more. Full disclosure, I was on the team that created this gin. I'm not being paid to talk about it. I'm just excited to share some of the inside baseball from the R&D process and share my enthusiasm for the fact that we've got another arrow in our gin quiver. You can find links to attend the launch party and maybe have a drink with yours truly over on the show notes page. You can check out video from this interview over on our YouTube channel. And with that... Please enjoy this refreshing 50-50 martini of a conversation with Jewel Murray and Duncan Coltharp. Jewel, Duncan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Eric. So let's kick it off like we always do here. Uh, we'll start with Jewel. Can you just introduce yourself to our listeners and uh, tell us who you are, what you do? Sure. Uh, my name is Jewel Murray. I am the uh, general manager and creative director here at the Gibson uh, the Gibson is a pre-prohibition style cocktail bar in Washington, D.C. We've been here for 13 years now. Um, we thankfully made it through the pandemic. We did have to close for a little while, but business has been going very well since we reopened last August, and we are very happy to be back. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for joining us. Duncan. Yeah, Eric, we know each other briefly. Um, I work for Mount Defiance. My name is Duncan. Uh, my pronouns are he, him. I have been working for Mount Defiance for about two years, so really... Uh, tapped in for the pandemic, for sure. And Mount Defiance is a small craft cidery and distillery. Uh, we've been around for about six years. Um, we really focus on balancing botanicals, um, French-inspired or uh, otherwise spirits that are not really caught on here in the, in the US yet, and delivering just incredible, complex, tight flavors. Mm -hmm. through our spirits. Yeah. And this is not our first podcast touch point with Mount Defiance. Uh, the distiller, our mutual friend, Peter Alf, uh, was one of our early, early guests on the podcast. So for those of you who are joining us, uh, via YouTube or who have a chance to swing by the show notes over at modernbarcart.com forward slash podcast, you can check out uh, our interview, which I will link to there. Uh, we discuss a ton of cool stuff, including absinthe, uh, which is uh, one of the products that Mount Defiance is known for. But today, we are here not to talk about absinthe per se, although there is some vermouth on the table. We've got some other botanical stuff, but the botanical spirit we're here to discuss is gin. And I'm super excited to meet with you both because you kind of represent two different, really important touch points on the journey of a bottle of gin on its way to someone's belly. 
right? Jewel, obviously you are as, you know, I'm kind of keying in on part of your job description here, creative director. You're responsible not only for, you know, making sure that the bar here is up and running, but also that the drinks that are coming over the bar to guests are evocative of what the Gibson wants to, you know, kind of put out in terms of quality. You've been here in Washington, D.C. for 13 years, really well-respected joint. And uh, so I'm wondering if you might kick us off by kind of talking a little bit about the cocktail ethos here and, you know, what happens speculatively, and maybe we'll get into details, when a bottle of spirits that you decide to take into your program comes behind the bar and you need to decide, hey, I need to make some cocktails with this. What does that all look like? And what's the vision for the Gibson? Sure. So like I said, we do pre-prohibition style cocktails. Uh, we're doing classic techniques, things that have been around for 200 years or so. We might bring in some more modern ingredients as far as things that exist in a bottle, such as um, Chinola plays really well with gin, for example. It's a passion fruit liqueur coming out of Miami. Some of the more modern stuff, we obviously have a better selection than they did 150 years ago. We have a lot more to play with, but we're not doing any of the modern gastronomy techniques of playing with liquid nitrogen or, you know, making weird foams or anything. Those have a place and they're delicious. Um, we are very classic oriented bar here. Uh, so we try and keep our cocktails five ingredients or less, uh, usual three ounce formula before dilution um, for anything that is going to be stirred or shaken. And then any long cocktails, we'll try and do that three ounces before we lengthen them out with anything bubbly. That's a really useful, I think, creative constraint because our audience is almost split right down the middle between home bartenders who are really passionate about their craft and then industry professionals who just are interested in learning about a slightly different view on the industry. And I don't think I've ever heard somebody so concisely and I guess service oriented, service orientationally <laughs> describe what you were talking about in this like, okay, our creative constraint generally is that we're a pre-prohibition style or prohibition, you know, kind of like a hundred or 200 years ago cocktail style bar. And that takes certain things off the table, but what remains on the table, here's how we're going to execute that. And to me, like, and anybody else who has ever tried to develop a creative cocktail or put together cocktails for a group of guests at home, you know that creative constraints are often where you're going to find, you know, some of the mm -hmm. things that you do best as a bartender or as a bar program. So I'm excited to talk to you about more of what that entails as we go here. Uh, but Duncan, can uh, you introduce us very generally speaking to this new bottle over on the table right here and uh, maybe give our listeners a little bit of a sneak peek into how it came to be. Yeah, of course. Um, I think what's really interesting about gin uh, in terms of when you're starting out to make it and what our gin is, is you're really flavoring what is basically a neutral, just blank slate. And so when you go into it, you have to have a clear idea of what you want and you have to have a clear idea of some of your constraints. So for us, we certainly wanted to constrain ourselves within kind of the core of the category of gin, which is a spirit that is very juniper present, juniper being a resinous berry that adds that primary flavor note that you associate with gin. And we also wanted to balance in our own kind of signature of balanced botanicals, um, which is something that we make a big deal out of at Mount Defiance. So kind of going into this process, we had that set out. And the first step was 
evaluating other gins that were on the market. Like what else is out there, especially what else is out there locally. Mount Defiance is a very local focus. Um, and so it's important to know who are we competing with, but also more specifically, like what are people looking for in the area? What are people excited about? You know, um, we're in Washington, D.C., obviously, and there are a lot of home bartenders and bars that are really focused on well-crafted, balanced, interesting expressions. And that is where we wanted to go with the gin. And certainly, I think that's what we have accomplished so far. After the tasting of the initial group of other gins, you know, we're going in and, and we're looking at what can we incorporate. Um, and that certainly is the first step. Yeah, I, I like that you're bringing up sort of the gin culture here. DC is very much a gin city. Of course, we have our history with the gin Ricky being invented here, you know, liquid air conditioning, as, as some people call it. So people in Washington, DC and, and this region, uh, I think, pay a little bit more attention to gin than other folks around the country. Certainly 10 years ago, that was the case. Maybe now, um, you know, certain certain regions have caught up, but it's a it's a region with a gin focus. And um, just to kind of continue the the narrative of like, okay, we've got Mount Defiance. You decide that as a company, you want to release a gin. And to me, this makes sense, right? Some of the other products that you had in the portfolio before that were an absinthe, this beautiful sweet vermouth, uh, which we also have here on the bar in front of us, uh, a gin would, uh, from a cocktail perspective, open up a lot of great cocktails that somebody could make all with bottles from Mount Defiance. And, and so in that respect, I think it adds, adds a lot of versatility. And um, on the other hand, it's quite an undertaking because it's nice to be able to say like, okay, here are the gins that we respect around. You know, you take your samplings from craft and then, you know, maybe you sample a couple other bottles from like the middle shelf of some of the larger producers, both domestically and from abroad, which is what you did. And then you're faced with the process of actually constructing this gin. So what did that look like? How did, how did that proceed from like, okay, here's an idea. We want juniper and here's some other gins we like, then what? Yeah, um, this will be new information for you as well because we didn't get into that very much when we were here. Um, basically, I just wanna start with a quick anecdote of like what happened with Mount Defiance and gin. When I was introduced to Mount Defiance in 2018, they were not making a gin. They were, Absinthe is our flagship and uh, we have this other large portfolio. And when I tasted through their portfolio, I was like, why is there no gin here? There has to be a gin here. The head distiller, um, Peter Alf, he is like, he's really cut his teeth on balancing botanicals, which you have to be able to do if you're gonna make an absinthe. And I was like, you know, the most, the, the best expression of that that I can think of that the average person drinks is gonna be a gin. And so I immediately was like, you guys have to make a gin. When are you making a gin, et cetera. And I eventually came to work for them and I kept harping on it. And then I just like let it go for a while. And we were working on all these other projects and finally comes back around. Peter's like, we've been, we've been messing with aged agave spirits for a while and we're gonna do something new. We're gonna make a gin. So we do this tasting project. I'm excited. The next step is certainly going to be getting your ingredients together and then trying to somehow synthesize those into a drinkable glass. So you have an idea of what you want in it, what you don't want in it, 
and what you uh, really don't want in it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I like that. It, it's it's an interesting iterative process too. And and Jewel, I'm sure that it actually very closely resembles the process of kind of stress testing a cocktail formulation in many respects. In that you know you come in with the base idea, you guess, you check, you taste. It either hits or it doesn't, and then you figure out which flavor knobs that you want to turn. Um, with the gin, though, the interesting thing about the process that I was very lucky to, um, you know, be involved in was it, it's a lot of it's instead of working on developing a cocktail where you, you've got like maybe three to five ingredients, as you mentioned earlier, Jewel, where you're kind of like where the knobs that you're turning are a base spirit a sweetener, potentially an acid, you're you're really working with individual flavors when it comes to a gin. You're working with the star anise, you're working with the cardamom, you're working with the dried citrus peels. And it's it's a different, it's more granular in one respect, but you're also trying to build this way different cord that doesn't have sugar or acid to lean on. And so it's a really bizarre project. Um, and I want, I want to come back to to more of a group discussion but Duncan, before we do that, I just wanted to like get your overall impressions about like what that was like. It was, we met three to three different times, right? But like, what were your overall impressions of that process and, and kind of how it progressed from a bunch of individual botanicals to what we have in, in the bottle here in front of us? Yeah. Without going too far into it, basically my head distiller would, would take all of these ingredients uh, and either soak them in spirit or usually distill them on a small level. And we would have these bottles. I think we had probably 30 bottles of kind of like this, just clear liquid. And we would all go and uh, you would be kind of writing down a list of, I'm going to take you know this many milliliters of this, this many milliliters of this. And you would add it all into a build and then you would pour a little bit out and everyone would taste it. And everyone did that and you're getting these like wild ranges of flavor and we started to agree on specifics that we all really liked um for instance uh we were trying i think macedonian juniper and italian juniper mm -hmm. yep. ground and not ground and we settled on specifically ground italian juniper over the other types because of the flavors that it, it went and we basically did it with every ingredient until and then we did that again afterwards um but that's kind of the the gist of it but you did you did work at um, Ivy City for a while, right? I worked at 1-8 Distillery. 1-8, okay. Yeah. I, Ivy City being the gin. Did you work at all in the back in terms of formulation and giving any advice? No, I was just helping with the cocktail side. Okay. <laughs> but notably, um, they use a really cool local botanical mm -hmm. in their gin. It's the uh, Appalachian Spice Bush, I believe. The Eastern Northern Spice Bush. I, don't know, I just saw it in Rock Creek Park when I was hiking the other day. And I took a little picture with my plan identification app because I'm really cool. Nice. And I was like, oh, no kidding. That's in their gin. So uh, why don't we kick things off here by doing a little tasting of the gin? And uh, Duncan, while you pour that out, I'll, I'll kind of describe the, the label and the look and feel of the bottle to those of us who are just listening and not joining us on YouTube here. Um, the product name itself is called Gin Nouveau which I thought was really nice because uh, you have the absinthe superior, is that correct? Yes. So kind of going with a French thing. Now, if anyone listening has ever visited Mount Defiance, uh, 
especially recently, you've got a really beautiful tasting room and Peter himself is sort of inspired by the, uh, the Art Nouveau uh, style. So you've got some posters. He's himself done some beautiful woodwork. And um, so the, the labels of this Gin Nouveau, it's, it's a very kind of like uh, ev evocative of the French. And, and, you know, I don't think we need to avoid dropping names of products in here because uh, we don't have anything bad to say. But one of the inspirations for this product was the fact that I think both you and Peter enjoyed Citadel gin. Is that correct? Sure. Citadel was definitely an influencer and Junipero gin out of California. I would say uh -huh. those two had the most uh, direct influence. Um and Citadel is a favorite of actually Sandy Christmas, who helped mm -hmm. out with the gin formulation. Um, so the gin formulation team was Peter Alf, head distiller, Kimberly Knuckles, uh, our main distiller, actually. Uh, yourself, Eric Koslick, myself, uh, Duncan Coldup, and uh, Sandy Christmas. And... So yeah, the Citadel though, it's, it's, uh, you know, one of the things about that is that to me, it was one of the first products in the gin space to come out as what I would refer to as a continental style gin, which is a little bit different than the London dry, a very different, well, maybe, maybe less different from the new American than it would seem. But like one of the things that I want to talk about as we go here, after we get through a tasting is to kind of, um, talk about the different styles of gin that are out there on the market, talk about how this product may fit in. And then most importantly, give our listeners at home some idea about how to think about these and start mixing with them. That's really what I want to get to. But um, I'd love to get some just initial flavor notes, some nosing and tasting notes here. So what are, what are we getting, team? It definitely makes sense that Citadel was an inspiration. And Citadel is actually what we use as our rail gin here. So probably is why I like this one so much, too. It's, it's, a, it's a great... Like, I, it's... On the liquor store shelves, first of all, it generally comes in a liter bottle as opposed mm -hmm. to a 750, and it's under 30 bucks. So, I mean, come on. And it's a beautiful, like, outside of the the um, the Bombay Sapphire bottle, I think it's kind of the prettiest bottle out there. Mm -hmm. It's 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 a overall a great product for anybody who wants to start mixing with something that's a little bit more uh, sophisticated than the um, beef eater or something like that. But um, any, any specific flavor notes that you pull out of this, Jewel? Um, so I'm getting, um, as opposed to Citadel, I get a lot more pepper from this. Um, Citadel, especially with how it plays in cocktails, comes out a little more citrusy. Um, and so for me, this reads a little more on the London dry side than the continental side, um, which is great for cocktails because I, I know just tasting it what it's going to do with those cocktails, um, whereas Citadel can come off surprisingly citrusy sometimes, which is great to work with. Um, I also really like the floralness that comes out of this. Um, that gives me a lot more potential for a wider variety of things that, say, I might traditionally use something like Bar Hill for that just plays a little better with the floral notes, not necessarily having it itself. But knowing that those floral notes come out so nicely here, I know that I can use those and pull those elements out of it. And the spice as well in it with the, the nice upfront pepper um, of the of the flavor profile also opens up to savory things which is great um there's sometimes gins don't play as well with savory as you would think they will C citadel for example 
not my favorite with the the more savory things. Um, there's other style gins that, for example, the new American styles, if it's less on the floral side, they will do very, very well with the savory. But this is a nice balance of being able to play with all those elements. And I know I'm going to be able to throw it in most cocktails and have it be functional and delicious, which is very important for me. So that if a customer orders, say, you know, like a Pegu Club um, from our bartenders and they want to do it with a gin that, you know, we might not recommend for that necessarily because it's not going to bring out those elements. You have to have a certain amount of juniper for that cocktail to work. Um, we don't have to have that conversation with people and be like, hey, maybe not. <laughs> so it's really nice for us to have something that works really, really well with all those flavor profiles that we could need in a cocktail. I think what you've just brought up is a really interesting point because it's a conversation about versatility. And gin is on one hand, an incredibly versatile spirit. And then when you walk up to an individual bottle of gin, it can end up being not versatile at all. And so it, it's kind of, it's a tricky category because when you start to develop actual cocktails, you're like, all right, we need a gin cocktail. Great, we're gonna do it this. And then you turn around and you look at your bar and the way that bars work, folks, is that they generally don't have a zillion bottles of every, uh, of, of every given category. They generally pick a couple. So it's very feasible that one could say, all right, I need to make a gin cocktail. I wanna make this one. And then you turn around, you look at the bar and there's nobody who's really screaming out to be featured in that cocktail. So the last thing that I want to just sort of reply to specifically was the Bar Hill comment, because that really got me thinking. We had Ryan Christensen, the head distiller from Bar Hill, on not too, too long ago, and we got to sample through their products, and uh, notably, you know, their gin is sweetened mm -hmm. with honey. And so this is a perfect example of a case where it's like, oh, Bar Hill, such a great gin, but it's very junipery. Also very floral and sweetened. So if you want that floral kind of element without the extra sugar and without some of that, this Gin Nouveau really does bring that out. And one of the things, you know, on the, I wonder, Duncan, if you might be able to comment a little bit on where some of these flavor and aroma notes can be coming from. Um, we don't have to spit out all 13 of the botanicals here. Sure. One of the things that I'm getting is lemon balm right on the sure. nose. Um, and that seems to be a really important ingredient. So uh, talk about that. And then maybe some of the other things that are really coming out. Cubeb also comes to mind as a really powerful aroma here. Absolutely. Um, I think going back to what we said before about constraints, um, we pretty early on uh, had zeroed in on three kind of major components we wanted. We, we liked citrus, we liked juniper, and we liked spice. We wanted to not put front and center heat or uh, the floral notes or vegetal notes as much. So as far as some of the aromas, the lemon balm is, is obviously well-placed. Um, that is a botanical we use in our absinthe and in our uh, sweet vermouth. Um, we grow a bunch of it ourselves, and we really love the way that it um, provides uh, not quite perfumey, but like a nice, light, almost citrusy, floral, mm, vegetal note. Tea-like. Tea-like, exactly. Mm -hmm. um, you are the expert here as far as <laughs> actual names of ingredients. The cubeb pepper, uh, I love. And if I wanted to highlight one aspect of this gin that has really stuck out to me that I really enjoy, um, it would be the cubeb and the grains of paradise working together. Um, peppercorns, as we think of them often, black peppercorns, they have a certain just dry pepperiness to them. 
And what I have found with working with Sichuan peppercorns and now grains of paradise and cubeb peppers is you can actually get like a fruity kind of peppercorn flavor out of it. And that's something that I really look for now. And I'm looking for that like savory kind of fruity peppercorn like flavor. Um, and I think that sticks out really well in this. The only other thing that I would highlight that uh, a few discerning palettes have picked up before is we also use um, star anise in this build. And the star anise is something that uh, if you put in just a little bit so that it's there, but it's not overpowering, you can really add a level of like sophistication and polish. It's why you use absinthe as a rinse in so many cocktails or one of the reasons. And I think those are some of the major kind of standout solo pieces in this. Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned the Pegu Club mm -hmm. earlier as like, you know, something that might be a potential application. I wonder if we might talk about some of the ways that we would go about using this gin. Now, generally what I do when I walk up to a gin, if I want to just absolutely profile it off of first nosing, first tasting, I'm like, all right, are you a martini gin or are you a Negroni gin? Which one is it? Because <laughs> those are the two biggest gin, or like a gin and tonic would be sort of like the third one there of like, you know, is all I can do with you, you know, stick you with some tonic and squeeze a lime in there. And to be fair, like that, that, that was unfair. Like there's some gins that are just made and just begging to be used in a GNT. So I don't, I don't mean to make that as a, a pejorative uh, per se, but knowing that we've got this very specific gin, uh, we've got some real care in the ingredients and that you grow some of them. Uh, obviously Peter has a, almost a decade of experience working with these different ingredients. Um, our listeners who want to go back to our initial interview with him will hear about how um, you know he takes a trip up to New York, to New York every fall to procure the black currants for the cassis. Um, so a lot of care put into the botanicals here. Knowing that and knowing a little bit about the profile that we've described so far, what are we thinking? What have what have we played around with so far in terms of cocktails? And and if you have any comments more generally about how one goes about talking to a gin and saying, you know, what would you shine in? Like, feel free to give any general um, advice to our listeners as well. Um, well, where I would start is the martini. Um, same as you, martini, Negroni, gin and tonic. Um, those are your three things that are really going to tell you what those gins going to work with. Also, 50-50 martini is one of my favorite drinks of all time. <laughs> so it's just a great place to go to start with. It's really going to have that vermouth bring out the elements that are going to come to the front in the gin. It's going to add just enough sweetness and aromatics so that you're really going to let what's in this glass shine. Um, one thing I also want to talk about, too, is a little bit of the texture um, of this gin. Um, yeah, please, so this please. gin in particular, I would love to make a 50-50 martini with just because its texture is it's a little bit um, kind of similar to Heyman's or Mahone in that it, it's got a little bit of oiliness to it. Um, and I'm assuming that's because the junipers are, before you use the ground juniper, they are dry aged, um, which is what those two distillers do. And it does, and not oiliness in a bad way, just oiliness in that it's got a little heavier mouthfeel, which is really nice when you're working with cocktails. Um, some of the gins just, you know, they don't, they don't have their, a lot of weight to them, which is fine. They, they work very well in other things. I would usually put those with a more citrusy, acidic cocktail if they don't have that weight to them. Um, if they do have the weight, then it really opens up a lot that we can do with it. So for me, um, there's three cocktails that I've done in the past um, that I 
think would be really good with this. And then also I should preface this by saying, um, this is a controversial thing to say. There's only about four or five cocktails. (laughs) (laughs) Um, everything falls into one of those four or five categories and I go four or five because it's really about four and a half. Um, so where you're going with your home bar cocktails, if you want to be playing around with stuff, um, the best thing that you can do is learn your classics and then just expand on those from there. Change an ingredient out, change your ratios a little bit. Um, that's basically what all of us bartenders are doing, unless you're doing that molecular gross out under me stuff, which is fun, but not my, not what I do. <laughs> um, I do specialize in the pre-prohibition here. Um, so for me, um, the three cocktails that I have from the past that I think would work very well with. Um, one of them was called La Camista. I did it with a, a pop-up with Bad Hunter from Chicago. Um, then they came here. Um, and it was with uh, originally with Brooklyn Gin. Um, what I like about Brooklyn Gin, I like even more about this gin that I think is going to work really well with this. It was uh, gin, uh, Blanc Vermouth, Ancho Reyes liqueur, uh, the the red one. So you're getting the, the mm-hmm. nice Ancho chili flavor in there. And then I used a black pepper tincture and orange bitters with that. You might not even need the black pepper tincture from this. Um, because the pepper is so present in this gin that it might not even be necessary. It might come out just beautifully on its own without that. Um, second cocktail I go to um, was a play on the South Side-ish. Oh, yeah. um, oh, it yeah. had uh, gin, uh, lemon juice. Um, this one had Genepi and St. Germain in it. Um, so you're going to really bring out a lot of those floral and a little bit of the vegetal flavors. Um, I called it, I think it was Park City 1994. Um, <laughs> it really evoked a, a specific place and time for me. Um, so that one, it would work really well in that. And then the third one um, was a drink called Under the Branches. Um, it originally was made with Bar Hill, uh, but I think it will completely change the profile to use it with this gin in an amazing way. And it was gin, Oloroso, sherry. Um, let's see, Genepi again, I love Genepi and then a dash of absinthe. And mm. so I think that if we made the cocktails back to back with those gins, they would be completely different drinks in really great ways. Um, and that third one, particularly that texture is going to come a lot into play playing with that Oloroso. It's going to have a really, really nice high saline mouthfeel to it. Mm. I like the high saline. That's nice. This brings up a few things, Duncan, that you and I have spoken about just in the last two sentences. We have Oloroso Sherry, mm-hmm. which which is an obviously uh, it's a more of a desserty um, flavored sherry. But if we just zoom out to talk about sherries in general, and we talk about salinity, when you and I sat down together and tasted through the Mount Defiance portfolio, two of the a couple of the things I should say that really came out were the food friendliness of the portfolio that you have. And I attributed those that that food friendliness to almost like an oxidized character. We've got this vermouth here in front of us and anyone who's joining us um, via video is able to see just the, the amber, beautiful color, which is atypical when you put it on the shelf next to your regular sweet vermouths. Right, so it's it's a little bit more oxidized. You also have uh, in the cassis, a instead of going with a sort of acid bomb and fruit bomb cassis, it again it's a little bit more earthy. It kind of it you know I've only ever had cassis from France. I've never had cassis with black currants from New York. So for all we know, there could be a terroir thing going on. But regardless, you have a number of modifiers in your portfolio that are incredibly food friendly and 
uh, almost have that oxidized characteristic that Sherry has. So it doesn't surprise me to hear you praising the salinity and the, you know, it's the, the, the mouthfeel in this. You also, Jewel brought up Mahone, I believe. Mm-hmm. And what was the Hayman's. other? Hayman's, right. Mm-hmm. So now the London drive. So Mahone. This is this is just something that I want to return to briefly here. We we might decide we want to talk a little bit more about it. We might decide to move on from it, but I've been really interested to watch the way that gin has progressed over the last decade or so because what you have with the launch of something like an aviation a while back and with some of the other stuff, Green Hat certainly here in DC was one of the early comers locally. Uh, and then I would probably throw a third one in there in Blue Coat out of Chicago uh, as three really standouts in what you might call like the new American style gin tradition, which is very much in contrast to the London dry styles, the Juniper Bombs, the Tanquerays, the Beefeaters, for example. Uh, and it evolved after some of these early experiments to be like, how little Juniper can we get in here and how much other crazy stuff can we do with it? Um, to the point that it then triggered the flavored vodka craze with like kettle one botanicals and like all that sort of stuff where people said like, screw all this complexity. Let's just take one thing and infuse the spirit with it. Right. So, um, I, I see new American is almost having, jumped the shark in, in a manner of speaking, because the question that Duncan, you and I kind of had to struggle with as we were thinking about what kind of botanicals we wanted to take with those little eyedroppers and squirt into our test glasses was like, okay, well, we're technically making a new American style gin, but we're just not happy with what this category represents anymore. So what do we want to do? That's where some of these other bottles came in, like the Citadel. And for me, Mahone is a really exciting um, gin. I believe it has its own geographic denomination of origin. It does. And now it is the only one now that Plymouth has dropped theirs. Right. I love it. I love it. Um, That's a story for another time. I'd love to do a podcast just on that because it's fascinating to me. This episode is brought to you by Near Country Provisions. I've been a customer for about a year now, and I can say without hesitation that the delivery of frozen farm fresh meat that I receive from Adam and his team makes me do a little happy dance every month. Not only does Near Country offer grass-fed beef and pasture-raised pork, but they also have an awesome selection of chicken and seafood. And the best part is it's all local and it's all sustainably farmed and harvested. You can customize every order, or simply leave the selection in their capable hands like I do. Near Country even offers fun add-ons like bones for soups and stocks, as well as special holiday offerings like turkeys, brisket, and more. If you live in the Mid-Atlantic, that's D.C., Maryland, or Virginia, and you're sick of the same bland selection at the grocery store, or you're looking to drastically improve the quality of the protein in your diet, Near Country Provisions has you covered. Head over to nearcountry.com and enter the code BARCART, all one word, when you sign up for your subscription to receive two free pounds of bacon or ground beef in your first delivery. That's BARCART, B-A-R-C-A-R-T, all one word, at checkout. This is easily one of the biggest quality of life improvements I've made in the last year or two, so I hope you'll give Near Country Provisions a shot and let me know what you think. Now, back to the show. But uh, another one that I would like to throw in there 
very different. I think it makes a intriguing triangle with Citadel, Mahone, and then the third corner being Malfi gin, being a very Italian gin, very citrusy. So you have these three different parts of Europe, two that are very Mediterranean-y, and then you have one that's very continental, sort of floral, a little bit more ethereal. They're these gins that started coming out of Europe after the new American explosion and probably very quick on the heels of the Spanish gin tonique explosion were these gins that really had a sense of place and a sense of themselves. And that's all a very long and roundabout way of saying, I think what the Gin Nouveau represents for me is gin finally becoming comfortable with itself again as a product that's like, okay, I'm from a specific place. I've got a specific set of things going on, but I still want to be gin. That was a long ramble. (laughs) Does that make any sense? Like, is that mapping on with you guys? Sure, sure. It does. I would say um, the Spanish gins are a little bit different, though. Um, obviously, gin was popularized by the British being there for various wars and vacations and whatnot. Um, and the Spanish are, you know, they're resourceful people. They said, well, why would we bring this stuff in? We can grow juniper berries. We yeah. have grape distillate. We'll just make our own. Yeah. So that's how Mahone came about. So it's actually been around for um, quite some time. It just wasn't ever exported. So the Spanish mm-hmm. have a... An, particular have a long tradition of just making their own and enjoying it on their own, <laughs> which is great. That's that's a great point. I wasn't quite sure when it was actually developed, but it had it, it was there was an event. It was right before the pandemic. It was the Gin World event from our good friend Natasha. And since we're mentioning friends, I, I do have to mention, Duncan, that when you were talking earlier about the uh, the different aspects of the gin flavor wheel, that's straight from our friend Aaron at the Gin Is In. So Aaron, if you're listening, yeah, if anyone wants to learn more about gin flavor profiles, uh, check out theginisin.com. It's a great way to learn about new gins and to play around with this really cool flavor wheel that he has built where you can kind of program in your very specific gin profile uh, using a hexagonal wheel with some different knobs and, and levers that you can play around with. So some great resources. I just wanted to have that kind of historical last 10 years overview here, because I know that a lot of people have been increasingly confused about gin, and I'm just so happy to have a new entry into the market that has a sense of self that is not necessarily saying, well, I don't want to be something, right? I think you can create a product by saying, I want to be a London dry gin, or I want to be you know, a gin that is of this place. Or you can create a product just by saying, just by, you know, parroting what everyone else is saying is like, ah, oh, it tastes like Christmas tree. Don't like that. And I think a lot of distillers, especially in the craft space, and unfortunately in the craft space, it's given craft a bad name in, in many cases, have said, oh, we don't want juniper. So we'll just de-emphasize that. And our brand will be de-emphasizing juniper as opposed to emphasizing something positive. Um, so anyway, that's my main takeaway uh, on like how I think this gin fits in. Now we have an awesome launch event that's coming up here at the Gibson. Um, so Jewel, can you talk to us about some of the details there and m- maybe mention our friend uh, Chantal, who's yes. going to be uh, <laughs> pulling some of the some of the punches here and, uh, you know, behind the stick, hopefully. Yes, Chantal and I will be behind the bar. It is on the 28th of this month, uh, April 28th. 
2022. Lord, how did we get this far in time? <laughs> We're here, though. We are. Um, so it will. there's two time periods, 6 to 8 p.m., 8 to 10 p.m. We are almost sold out um, for our regular tickets. We do still have VIP tickets available. With the VIP tickets, you'll get a nice swag bag and a drink ticket. So it should be a lot of fun. Um, definitely come join us. You can get details on our website at www.thegibsondc.com or on Mount Defiance's website. Yeah, that's going to be www.mtdefiance.com. And um, yeah, we're also going to be here myself, head distiller, his assistant distiller, and uh, we will be answering questions. We'll be doing tastings. Um, so you can learn a little bit more about like what actually you are tasting and what you can look for in it and what you might enjoy out of it. Yeah, it's great. Great way to spend a Thursday evening. And uh, I will be here as well. Uh, So to the extent that that makes it more or less attractive, we'll we'll leave that up for you to decide. But we'll have links. We're going to try and turn this uh, recording around pretty quickly. So hopefully if you're hearing this, it's within 24 to 48 hours uh, of us recording it. And you can head over to modernbarcart.com forward slash podcast. Check out the show notes page for links and more. Um, Before we jump into lightning round here, I have some special gin lightning round questions. I wanted to talk, Duncan, about maybe some of the cocktails and the ways that you've been experimenting with the Gin Nouveau over at Mount Defiance because, you know, we have have a, a professional bartender in the house, but you've also got a whole stable of your own products that you're able to to mix with there. And, and you and I have tossed around some ideas. So I'm wondering if, if there are any cocktails that you have found more or less successful with the Gin Nouveau in your own experiments. Uh, I know that you are a big fan of the Corpse Reviver family. That's something that you and I both agree heavily on. Yeah. So one of the hats I wear at Mount Defiance is cocktail consulting and coming up with recipe ideas that specifically use our products. Um, that's something that kind of came along with the pandemic and, uh, adapting to the circumstances. And along with that, there's been corporate events and things that we've run bottle programs, trophy bottles, and, um, often for the corporate events, certainly during the, the heat of the pandemic, there was no way to easily bring them in. We had to get the cocktail to them. Um, obviously bottled cocktails have become more of a thing now, but to varying success, um, so one of the ways that we approached people was with a boxed cocktail. And you've seen these around full bottle of spirits, uh, some sort of secondary mixer item, one or two other ingredients, something to, to basically show up and you can mix cocktails at your home. Right. And it's not in a, it's not like a Boda box or like right. a black box. It's like right. three, bo- couple bottles in a box. Exactly. Exactly. And then, you know, doing events with them, hopping on zoom and, and walking them through the process and. Obviously, I've seen a lot of people asking questions about cocktails and cocktail crafting that way. For that process, coming up with cocktails that people can make at home was a big component. And so a couple of the things that we've really worked on, one that really just jumped out at me right from the get-go, our cassis, as you mentioned before, is earthy and tart and sweet and berry and it combines with the gin in a really nice way. Um, they both bring a lot of flavors to the to the front. So pretty much right away, I, I came up with the current events, mm-hmm. C-U-R-R-A-N-T. And uh, that is gonna be just basically four parts Gin Nouveau to one part Cassis Liqueur, Mount Defiance, preferably, because that's gonna be where you're gonna get that really nice marriage of flavors, and then lengthen that out with some soda water. 
that presents you with something that lets you experience both of the the primary ingredients really nicely without them jockeying for position. Right. And it's kind of spritzy. Everybody likes a spritz. It's got a nice color in the glass. Um, There's really nothing not to like about it. Yep. And, uh, you know, just twist a little fresh lemon peel over the top and you're in really good shape, especially for the summer as we get a little warmed up here. Um, the other one that uh, I've been a huge fan of is uh, I came up with a kind of a blend of a Corpse Survivor 1 and a Corpse Survivor 2, I think last year. Uh, this would be a Corpse Survivor 1.5, somewhat cheekily named. And that is incorporating our Gin Nouveau and our Sweet Vermouth. The Sweet Vermouth, the proofing up of the Sweet Vermouth, the fortifying of it is done with an apple brandy. So it's incorporating the brandy a- aspect. We use our absinthe in that recipe, so that's incorporating... Um, the absinthe component, and then the third ingredient being the uh, orange liqueur of your choice. I believe I prefer dry curacao, but doing equal parts with those and then the rinse of of absinthe um, and lemon juice certainly is going to get you where you want to go for a boozy brunch, which we know DC loves a boozy brunch drink. Mm -hmm. Those are really exciting cocktails and, and, you know, I think it plays well into, you know, what we were talking about earlier of just, you know, trying to, trying to keep in mind that there's only a few cocktails out there. Uh, So if you can split the difference between a Corpse Survivor 1 and a Corpse Survivor 2, you might as well do that. I really do recommend that anybody who's in the Mid-Atlantic listening to this, check out the Mount Defiance portfolio. Um... You know, one of the things that it's really easy to get caught up in when you're in D.C. is that D.C. thinks very highly of itself. And, you know, it's very easy to uh, to realize that D.C. is uh, a little bit navel gazy when it comes to the stuff that they produce. There's a lot of really wonderful stuff happening within an hour or two drive of D.C. Mount Defiance located in Middleburg, a very easy drive from D.C. So anybody who's looking for a great little weekend trip out, whether it's a day trip or more of a little getaway, Middleburg is a great place to stop. Mount Defiance should be on your list. Before we jump into lightning round, is there anything we forgot to mention? Anything that we egregiously glossed over that we want to make sure we share with people either about the gin, about the Gibson, anything that we missed? Um, We mentioned Chantal, which obviously came up in my mind when you mentioned Sherry. I think the only thing on here that I wanted to also touch base on is um, the label is beautiful for those of you who can see it on video. Otherwise, I recommend jump over to mountdefiance.com, take a look at uh, the label artwork that's been done or follow us on social at Mount Defiance on Instagram. Daisy Miller is the one who came up with this design and I just wanted to credit her for what is honestly like one of the most immediately attractive components of the gin when you see it up on the shelf. Yeah, it's gorgeous. Kind of a, a midnight blue, gold, sun. You got some beautiful white flower. What kind of flowers are those on there? I believe those are irises. Irises, of course. Orris root being one of the sure. botanicals, one of our fixatives or binders in the gin process. So yeah, um, beautiful all the way around from from bottle to glass. And actually, you know, one thing that I just, this is a weird way to transition into the lightning round. It's an anti-transition. But one thing that I've been wanting to uh, mention a few times times here is uh, this gin is distilled slightly differently than many other gins out there in that it's not distilled using a gin basket. So I think that actually sort of ties up our discussion rather nicely in that, you know, if you're a person listening to this who is interested in learning more about gins, one of the one of the ways that you can start trying to break into the process behind the product is by thinking about how it's created. We mentioned earlier the really beautiful mouthfeel of this gin. 
and how that plays into the cocktails jewel that you've created. One thing that I know about this gin being involved in the process is it's not made using a gin basket and it's not made using a column still. Uh, so do you want to just fill in the details there really briefly and kind of maybe connect the dots about how that has contributed to some of the things that we're getting here on the palate? Yeah. Uh, without being uh, dismissive, one thing I love to say about gin is that it's basically <laughs> just vodka tea. Yeah. It is a bunch of ingredients that you put into as neutral a possible spirit as, as you can. You try to extract those flavors out in a pleasant way. And you want to then at the end have a nice infused flavorful beverage. Um, for our process, we are actually somewhat non-traditionally taking a bunch of really all of our botanicals and just throwing them into the still full of a neutral grain spirit and just letting those soak in. And we played around with a bunch of different ways of doing it. And that is the way that we like. And then when we cook that up and distill it out, we, I believe, are carrying some of those um, flavor components along with us, some of that um, texture, like you mentioned, some of the salinity and the oiliness. Um, we're also bottling it at 90 proof. Mm -hmm. um, after we let it rest for at least a month, we are bottling it at 90 proof, and that is just retaining some of those flavors and making sure that the flavor that's being delivered to the palate of the buyer is actually what we want it, it should include everything that we're looking for for them to get out of that gin and that's really the way that we do it again very european tradition it's almost like a an absinthe digestion what you're describing with those botanicals um and then distilling them through that pot still and then of course the resting of the spirit is is a practice that is uh very common throughout europe whether you're talking about uh modifiers like vermouth uh liqueurs like chartreuse which is rested in large vessels for a long time it's it's uh so a lot i wanted to make sure that we hit that because i thought that you know the, there's a couple of process points behind the scenes and if if you're listening to this and you're saying like hmm all right i didn't really know that gin was this complex or that there was this much to talk about in any given bottle of gin these are some of the questions that you can ask as, either to your bartender who's creating these cocktails to you about the way that they're designing these cocktails, or if you're at a distillery tasting room um, talking to the distiller about how it's actually made, you can start tracing these things about mouthfeel and about some of the ways that the flavors are playing together back to the way it's actually made. And that's when you start to come up with the real epiphanies. Um, so thank you both for sharing all these insights. Uh, you ready for a couple of quick lightning round questions? Sure. All right, got some special gin-related questions here. Great. So the first gin question that I have for you is besides juniper, juniper off the table, what is your favorite gin botanical? Joy, I think you should go first. Sure. Um, it's one that I don't believe is in here. That's okay. <laughs> it's uh, fennel. fennel. I love fennel. fennel. It's also an absinthe. Um, it, uh, I, I tend to like a lot of the vegetal things a lot just for my personal drinking. And I think fennel brings out some really fun notes. It opens up a lot of uh, pathways to go in non-traditional ways with cocktails. Fennel. Do we remember if we put fennel in it? Uh, fennel seed. Fennel seed, I believe. I believe. Yes. Yeah, fennel seed. And yes. is, so is yours fennel seed or fennel like the, the, the uh, plant? The, the plant itself, mm -hmm. the fronds. Yeah, and yeah, the, yeah. the bulb yeah. tends to bring out. Fennel seeds are really nice in there too um, and will lead a little bit to the oiliness as well. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, I love fennel. Yeah. Fennel <laughs> is excellent. And 
Um, I would love to see more with it in, as a cocktail ingredient in general. Um, I guess I already kind of answered this because the peppers is the thing that I, the peppercorns uh, for sure is the thing that, that really sticks out to me. So I think on a broader range, just uh, the spiciness in gin that you get from something like a pepper, a uh, corn, a spice bush, something like that. I think that's something that is not super present in my past history with gin and is something that I've really come to enjoy and want to build into my cocktails. Mm. For my part, I am a bit of a bit of a novelty whore when it comes to um, gin. Like I want the like I'm always looking for like the weirdest like botanical. The weirdest botanical is my favorite botanical. Um, but barring that, I would say one botanical that is seldom used and even more seldom used well is saffron. And I've heard it's very expensive. I, I get why people want to shy away from it. It's a financially smart decision <laughs> to uh, to not try and mess around with that because you're going to get it wrong more often than not. It's difficult to work with in that if you use too much of it, it can taste dirty almost. Uh, it's got like a, it has a very aggressive flavor. Um, and interestingly enough, I'm not even referring to like a saffron infused gin, which you can find. Uh, I remember when I went to Burgundy about 10 years ago, 10 years ago, seven years ago, they have like a, a lot of saffron that you just go to Burgundy and they have these lines of just yellow gins all over the shelves, but just as a botanical and a regular clear gin, I really like a saffron. Okay. Next question is, uh, what is your favorite lesser known gin cocktail. So we'll take off the martini, we'll take off the, you know, any of the gin, any of the big one, the big threes are kind of like the Rickies and stuff. Any favorite gin cocktails that most people wouldn't know? Mm, that is tricky. You know, I waffle back on for, back and forth on this one. I, I do think without going for the one of the big ones, I think kind of a comfort build for me is a bee's knees, mm. a well-made bee's knees with a good honey, fresh citrus, and kind of rotating out different gins that you want to experiment with and just finding which ones do what with it. I love simple three ingredient cocktails for that because you get to just play around with almost like a, a prism of different flavors. Um, and the bee's knees just offers kind of like a light and unpretentious way to do that. Mm -hmm. Nice. Yeah, especially, I mean, and the honey syrup really is the key there. Uh, mine is the Remember the Alimony, which is a 2012 drink um, out of a now defunct bar in New York. Um, it is Fino, Sherry, Chinar, and Gin. Gin actually being only a, a three quarters of an ounce and then an ounce and a quarter of the other two. So a little bit different um, ratios than you would expect. Um, super delicious, though. Kind of like an upside down funk Negroni. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, nice, nice. See, you're reminding me. I have to. I have to go back. I had one of the first craft, like craft bartender cocktails I ever had. Adam Litton in Southeast Alaska <laughs> gave me this a Gershwin, right? Which are we familiar? Uh, I've seen it in writing. I can't remember. For I don't remember what's all in it. I know it is gin and uh, brandied cherry. I know okay. those are two of the major ingredients in it. And that thing, I mean, that's really what, that's really what started me on this whole path. Like that I was Gershwin like, cocktail? that Gershwin, I was like, Adam, make it, let's go, let's go. And it, and the reason I got it was because I went into a bar and I, I walked up to this bartender who I barely knew. And I was like, what are you working on? Make me a drink that you feel you're interested in making that you feel either passionate about or curious about. 
And I think that's a good way to build good relationships with bartenders. Just let mm. them, they're the professional. You don't need to come in and be like, well, I need like a basket gin that's been aged and just build a relationship with your bartender and talk to them about the cocktails that they're working on. Yeah. Thank you for coming to my TED talk. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I'll try and I'll try and dig that up, Duncan. I'll, I'll see what I can do. Maybe we can feature that here. Uh, mine would probably be, and it's even on the line of being like a lesser known gin cocktail, but a bijou is, you know, really where I go. It's sort of my second line of testing for a gin cocktail is, you know, you, you want to test it first in those big three um, where you think it's going to work. And then after that, you can say like, all right, how are you going to work with chartreuse? How are you going to work with some of these, you know, how are you going to stand up in a heavier, more complex stirred drink? Um, and, and, and what does that mean for <laughs> really it's, it, it sort of comes back and tests too, because then the question is like, uh, how on points is your dilution game? Like how well are you stirring this cocktail and are you paying attention? So, uh, for me, it's the Bijou. Uh, so a couple more lightning round questions for you guys here. This is, we've been talking about gin. We can kind of take off our gin hats. Put those down, put on the uh, put on the more overall spirits and cocktails hats. I'm actually retiring a lightning round question. Uh, I've been asking people's favorite cocktail, and I think now it's time to get into the desert island scenario. So after 225 episodes, we're changing things up a little bit. And uh, so for the inaugural one here, you got two, there's two uh, kind of options that you have here. I want to know your desert island cocktail, right? So if you're stranded on a cocktail or a, a desert island for the rest of your life, what cocktail is the one cocktail that you would drink or, and or conversely, if you could only take one bottle with you, what is that bottle? And I think there are two very different scenarios here. So anybody who has an answer for that can kick us off. I have three answers for you because good. it depends on the climate of the desert island. Okay, good. <laughs> so. This is good. We're stress testing this question. <laughs> this is great. So for a warm climate, we are going to go with a bamboo. Is that my cocktail that I do? Very light, easy drinking, not going to make you too hungover the next day when you have to deal with high humidity and sun like okay. we do in D.C. all summer. And then my bottle would be an aged agricole rum like the Clement XO. Okay. Uh, for a medium temperature, uh, we would go with a tuxedo. So, which is basically a bamboo edging. You can see a theme here. Um, and then I would go with a nice grassy, savory mezcal. My current favorite is Malbien's Pabalote Capon. Uh -huh. um, really good. Um, a distributor brought it in and I immediately bought a bottle for myself. It's kind of a weird, high saline, very green peppery mm. mezcal. Um, and then if it's a cold place, which would be my personal choice of where I would get stranded, um, I would do 50-50 martini. So just cut the cherry out now. Uh, basically a similar cocktail. Um, and then I would go with a nice Armagnac, uh, really okay. nice, uh, 12, 15 year. That's a, a remarkably well thought out answer. I think you're, I think we're, we're setting the, uh, setting the standards pretty high for the new lightning round question. Duncan, what do you got? That is excellent. And, and uh, following it challenging for sure. Uh, what I will say is, so to clarify your lightning round question, is this like a is this like a robot bartender situation where you have an unlimited supply of this cocktail yeah, for the rest of your life? Yeah, there? Unlimited supply for the rest of your life. So you you could get you could very easily get sick of this cocktail. I think that's the challenge for mm -hmm. me is yes. kind of no matter what, anything becomes a bit old over time. So I think what I've got to say for this, I feel like my fallback is going to be a Sazerac. Like a well-made Sazerac that 
I can just rely on. Mm-hmm. You know, if I'm out on this island and I'm like building crap all day and like <laughs> trying to like survive, I want like something really solid at the end of the day. And then I went kind of the other direction as far as practicality. Is this bottle situation a like magic refilling bottle? Yes. That you have? Okay, so for that, I'm gonna go with absinthe and hear me out. Doesn't, I mean, I would love for it to be the Mount Defiance absinthe, but it's one of the few things you can get that is uh, high enough proof to be antiseptic. And so then we're working on oh, not good. dying from sepsis, okay? Good, so that's good. kind of the main key for me. I mean, it's delicious for sure, but then, you know, you get a cut, what are you gonna do? <laughs> All right. You guys are really pulling in some extra affordances <laughs> here that that I that I'm a big fan of. Uh for me personally, and I don't think I'm going to be answering this very often. This is mostly just going to be, you know, sent off to my guests and they they have to answer it. But for me, if I had to answer it right now, I would say probably and this is a boring answer, but a Negroni would be my cocktail. And the thing about the thing about the Negroni is like I mean, maybe this you know, maybe this island has a nice source of fresh water. This is something where it's very easy that you can dilute it up or down. Like the Negroni is, you know, kind of in the spritzy area. I very often at home will, you know, make a Negroni and then, you know, top it with some lemon seltzer anyway, um, just to lighten it up a little bit. So that's an option for me. And then in terms of a single bottle for the rest of my life, I mean, part of me wants to kind of go in your direction, Duncan, and just say chartreuse, but I feel like on a desert island scenario, like chartreuse is, is, is a little bit, a little bit much. So I think instead I would go with a nice, just bonded bourbon, just anything that's, that's like a, a book, probably like a bookers or something, something equivalent of that. Just something that's, that's nice. That's going to pack a punch at the end of the day. Uh, but it would not be my, my cocktail. So yeah, thank you for, thank you for showing some of the cracks in that. I'm going to see if I can, uh, shore up my delivery of that question moving forward to, to make sure that, uh, some of these uh, lingering low low hanging fruit questions are answered there. Um, last question here, the Widowmaker cocktail with anybody in the world, past or present. Who would it be? Where would you go? What would you drink? Just paint us a picture, Jewel. Um, I would have a drink with James Baldwin. Um, I think he was fascinating. I think the way that he thought about specifically race, um, gender theory, queer theory, um, especially in modern American society at his time, was really so far ahead of his time that it's just fascinating. Um, And as far as what we would drink, um, I would like to do it on the left bank of Paris and any time after maybe 1950. And uh, we would drink literally everything, martinis, red wine, some nice cognac or armagnac. Let's just get wasted. <laughs> yeah, whatever's there. Talk till the early hours of the morning and uh, see the sunrise. <laughs> yeah, gorgeous. Very good. No, we haven't had James Baldwin yet. That's a new one after 225. Wow. Yeah, um, clearly I need to step up my uh, A-game here. Jules really bringing some like just excellent answers. Um, I read too much. <laughs> no, that is great. There's no such thing as reading too much. Um, I went a little wild with this one, I will say. Um, I was thinking about gin and I was thinking about space, as I often do. And so I ended up with- Space comma outer space, space comma, comma- Solar system, okay. like yeah, yeah. travel, etc. And right. I was like, what are people going to drink once they are in space for long times? So yep. right, right now, you can't have alcohol in the International Space Station. However, doesn't stop Russians and others from smuggling uh, I believe cognac is what they were smuggling up onto the International Space Station. Okay. And I was thinking when we start 
doing the whole like other planet colonization thing, we're going to have to have some sort of like homemade distillate there. So I was like, any astronaut or Martian person, colonist, drink with them on Mars or another extra, uh, extra Terra, yeah, exoplanet. And then whatever distillate that they make, so probably like a potato, like a potato vodka or something, right? Like a really hearty <laughs> something or other, right? Yeah. And then just, and just key, key component here, import from Earth something like fresh citrus and like a honey syrup or an agave syrup. Just some, a little taste of home, blend it up with whatever their like probably basically bathtub vodka is that they make out there on, on Mars, let's say, and just like sit and uh, just chat about the cosmos. I watch too much science fiction, clearly. I like your, uh, your confidence that we're going to meet carbon-based life forms. <laughs> I, I, as much as I want to name this episode Bathtub Vodka on Mars, uh, <laughs> I, I think we're going to have to do something a little bit more uh, search engine friendly and uh, descriptive of actually what we talk about. But that was, that was a good one. You may enjoy some, some of the past conversations I've had with Derek Brown about the Star Trek cocktail, the, the Synthe Hall and uh, the bar at 10 Forward on the, on the Enterprise and some of the uh, imaginative implications that are already starting to come true about uh, you know, those funny little machines that, that can make tea Earl Grey hot. Uh, as well as the synthahol that they they drink on the enterprise, so I think that there's I think there's some really fun things to be spoken about about the future of where spirits and cocktails can go. I'm even more excited about the present of the gin that is in front of us here, and about the fact that the Gibson is back open after the pandemic and rocking and rolling here. Uh, so again. Can we please, Jewel, just share the details of that event just so that everybody listening knows when sure. they can come hang out with all three of us? Sure. It is Thursday, April 28th. Uh, there's a 6 to 8 time slot and an 8 to 10. Uh, definitely get tickets in advance. Uh, we do have VIP tickets for sale as well. And you can find that information at www.thegibsondc.com or at www.mountdefiance.com. Absolutely. And uh, so again, will all three be present as well as Peter Alf, past guest, and everyone's favorite, Chantal Sang at Shinobi Paws on Instagram, who does a lot of great stuff here in DC. If you're not following Chantal and what she does, um, you know, specifically for people who read too much, um, she does, she does some great literary cocktail stuff and she, she does a number of other, um, sort of recurring events here at the Gibson. Exactly. Correct. She's got an absinthe focused one every time a month has a fifth Thursday. Um, she has a, a night called Fifth Column Absinthe Night. Um, and then she also has a quarterly, it's called Vinomorphy. And it's all about how wine and wine products can be turned into cocktails. And you also get to read and write some haiku there. So it's a lot of fun. Yep. So, Jewel, Duncan, thank you so much for being guests here on the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. Thank you for having us. Great. Thank you, Eric. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes 
on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is, the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here, and by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Bar Cart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners, and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember, folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. This episode was made possible with editing and sound design by Samantha Reed. Gin and Gin Cocktail Insights, courtesy of Jewel Murray and Duncan Coltharp, and a little bit of interview magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2022.